I will work day in and day out. Wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Kirsty Inners, Director of Public Services Policy at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, to discuss a new paper that's recently been published by the Institute, The Great Enabler, Transforming the Future of Britain's Public Services Through Digital Identity. Welcome to the podcast, Kirsty. Hi, Will. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. Um, now, the first question I'd like to ask is, what prompted you uh, and what prompted uh, the Tony Blair Institute to want to write this paper on digital identity? Well, a lot of our work is looking at how governments can improve themselves and the services they offer to people through technology. And the more we work on it, the more it becomes obvious that government is a long way behind the rest of society when it comes to embracing tech. So the rest of our lives, the way you play, work, shop, interact with people has been transformed, completely unrecognisable, even from 10 years ago, let alone 30 years ago. But working with government still feels very much like it did in the 70s or 80s. It's bureaucratic, it is uh, burdensome, it's slow, and getting stuff done inside government likewise lags behind the private sector. And one of the main pieces of infrastructure that needs to be in place to help government catch up is digital identity. That's why we think of it as the great enabler. We think that in order to really make progress with digitalizing government services and government processes, it's essential that we have this bit of infrastructure available for citizens and for businesses. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, There will, of course, be uh, groups and individuals that express concern about the amount of information that would be contained in having a digital identity. What would you say to reassure someone about the security aspects of a digital identity? Yeah. So what I say is this is much more about giving citizens access to and control over the data that's held about them by government than it is about collecting more data. So every time you interact with a government body, data is generated. And for each of us as citizens, there are pools of data concerning us held all over different bits of government. But at the moment, you don't know what they are or where they are. You don't have access to them and you certainly can't control how they're used or who uses what for what purpose. You could do a subject access request, but that in itself is quite burdensome and quite limited in what it shows you. So in putting in place a digital identity, our proposal would be that you can give citizens access to an account where they can see what information is held by whom, why it's accessed and when and what it's used for. And they can give consent in quite a specific and granular way, different uses of their data, not only to serve them specifically. So I could say, for instance, I'm going to apply to HMRC for tax-free childcare. Now, HMRC, I know you know my income and I know you know my national insurance number because you're the the institution that, that generates those and that administers my PAYE. So I'm going to give you consent to look in your records and find out that information about me. Fill it in yourself. Don't make me find out that information and fill it in again when I'm applying to you for this benefit. So Think about that in all kinds of situations replicated across public services and you're looking at a really significant improvement in how easy it is for people to access services and benefits. Mm, absolutely. And, and and one of the um, uh, streamlined ways that is um, mentioned is, is related to healthcare and there are clearly uh, massive positives of, of a proposed digital ID for healthcare. Um, in the paper you mentioned it would mean that patients in pain will have to retell their experiences again and again to different medical professionals in order to get the help that they needed. 
the information would be relayed simply by tapping their phone and linking their registration uh, at the hospital to a recent 111 call. How effective do you think a digital identity could be in cutting waiting times for patients and for ensuring more effective and targeted care for them? I think it could be absolutely transformational. So Mm -hmm. there's sort of two levels at which this operates. One is the individual. So as you say, we think a citizen should be able to, or a patient should be able to go to a healthcare provider and have them access their records from wherever else they were generated, never mind if it was a different hospital or a GP or even a private sector provider. You should be able to say, okay, I I give you permission, download my history and you can see everything you need to know about me. That can help with making those interactions quicker and easier. Um, And it can also help with more sort of preventive and proactive model of healthcare. So if you know about me that I am a woman aged 40 with uh, certain pre-existing conditions, you can reach out to me and say, you need to go for this screening or you should consider that nutritional approach. As more research comes online showing, um, which gives us more insight into the way specific groups of the population should think about their health, you can make that available to people in a much more targeted, tailored basis. So that's the first level, the kind of citizen level. And then at the population level, the UK's health data is this massive competitive advantage because in very few other places is the health healthcare system so unified. So we have this brilliant, rich um, ecosystem of data sets and loads of work has gone into making them available for research. I, I don't want to deny any of the efforts that are already in place, but there's still a lot more we could do to make them more easily accessible for research to help speed up process on um, research and development of therapies and treatments um, and um, as I say, develop that more preventative approach to healthcare so that rather than waiting for people to get very sick and then treating them, we are um, helping people to take responsibility for their health and well-being much earlier on and really avoid getting sick in the first place. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, you mentioned as well in, in, in the paper uh, that a student with our digital identity who shared data with a national education system could create a bespoke learning experience um, using artificial intelligence, AI. How would this work exactly? And is there a concern that some university lecturers and staff might resist engaging with any university uh, that chose to implement this, given the issues some universities have had recently um, with lecturers refusing to record their lectures uh, for fear that the recordings could be used as substitutes for in-person lectures and seminars and thus cause redundancies? Yeah. I mean, we've argued that government can be much more ambitious and forward-leaning in the way it embraces AI as well. But none of that is to say that AI can replace humans. That's absolutely not what we're saying. It's a complement to skilled humans. And at its best, tools like AI can free up humans from doing the more mechanical work. So in teaching, that might be marking um, to do the stuff that only a human can do, you know, person to person, one to one support, maintaining the engagement of a whole class, um, you know, bringing subjects to life. So that's the way I would envisage it being used, you know, in education, having that um, individual student level data could mean that an AI learning assistant could, for instance, look at your progress on a range of measures and say, ah, you've understood this subject matter to some extent, but the next step for you would be to do some exercises to really embed the knowledge or to join a group session to practice it with other students. And it can make those recommendations and help you um, develop a more personalized learning path with interventions that are right for you at that moment. And then again, on the system systemic level, having data um, about how schools are doing in terms of their progress in, t- in um, supporting pupils can help us understand what works and what doesn't much more rapidly um, 
and moved to a system where rather than having Ofsted come around once every five years and do a, a few days in the school and then give you a very um, monolithic verdict of either, you know, okay or not okay, uh, you could have a much more real-time insight into how well a school is doing and how it compares to its peers and spot more quickly where things are going wrong um, and where there's something that's really, really working and then make that available to much more, to many more people. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that um, the kind of feedback that would be um, generated from this could help in um, perhaps rewriting the curriculum and, and forming how the how the curriculum would go on uh, in, in, in the future, that information generated by um, the uh, the AI's engagement both with, with um, school children and with schools in general could perhaps highlight maybe some issues or some areas that haven't been covered by a particular curriculum and, and therefore could influence the the, uh, the curriculum going forward. Yes, maybe, because to the extent that schools have some flexibility about what subject areas they emphasise or don't teach, you might be able to look at um, the exam success or even the future employment success of students who had followed a certain learning pathway and say, okay, these guys were able to get jobs. These guys were less able to get jobs and actually, the, you know, um, there's merit in emphasizing the core skills or there's merit in, you know, supporting the soft skills, whatever it might be. I think it could end up being a really rich source of evidence for all kinds of um, initiatives to improve education. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um Illegal migration, particularly um, in small boats, is a reoccurring issue in any public policy discussion in the UK over the the past few years. Um, In the paper, you suggest that a digital identity system could deter people from making dangerous small boat crossings by enhancing identity identity verification capabilities and promoting compliance with immigration regulations. Is this to suggest that the system would be free from any kind of cloning of a, a digital identity or rather that it would be a preventative tactic in that the knowledge of the system being in place would deter smugglers and people from crossing the channel. I think it's both. So, mm-hmm. you know, that line you quote is a, just a posh way of saying it will make it much less easy to fake documents mm-hmm. and much easier to check documents. So by being able to issue a credential on your smartphone, for instance, that is something that can be live and can be updated and can be time limited if necessary and is personal to you, especially when you bring in things like biometrics. Um, they are much more secure than, for instance, a passport can be, um, where your your verification mechanism is looking at someone's face and seeing, does it look like this photograph, which may or may not be of a very good quality. So a digital identity credential that proves whether or not someone is entitled to come and live and work in a country could make it much harder to fake that ability and at the same time makes it easier to check. So we are not necessarily arguing for more or different checks on people's eligibility to come and work or live or seek asylum in the UK. But where we do already require those checks or we do recommend those checks take place, um, for instance, employers sometimes do this, landlords sometimes do this, they they ask you to prove your um, your right to be in the country. <laughs> That can happen much more quickly, like a tap of a phone, rather than someone having to dig out a piece of paper and someone else having to look at it and decide whether it's um, bona fide or not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned um, welfare earlier, and it is an important area that the, the paper discusses. How important would a digital identity be to streamlining uh, the benefit system? Yeah, I think super important. Um, the example I mentioned earlier, you know, a very sort of um, privileged person interaction with 
with government, um, such as myself, claiming tax-free childcare, um, that in itself can be made much more easy. But if you're someone who has a much more complicated relationship with government and there are many more services and benefits that you need to access, then making those easier to access and more simple to interact with is really valuable. And there's plenty of research to show that the less, the lower down the income scale you are and the less um, capability you have, the more barriers you actually face when it comes to getting what you need from government. So there is a disproportionate benefit to the less well-off and the underprivileged in making government services easier to access. Absolutely. Um, how concerned would you be at the potential of a digital identity to alienate or be difficult to use for older sections of the population? As although there are many older people who are fully able to use technology, there are also many uh, who aren't as comfortable with it. Would it be important if such a digital identity were introduced that the government actively campaigned to engage with older people uh, as much as possible uh, to ensure that they were able to use the digital ID as much as possible and, and, and reap the benefits of it? Well, I think campaigns might be part of the picture. Mm. But I'd also say that it's not all or nothing. You wouldn't mm. bring in this digital identity and require everyone to use only that from day one. It would run in, in parallel to other things. So, you know, where people are still comfortable using their passport or their driving license or their national insurance number or, you know, one of the 141 ways they that currently exist for you to log into government services, they could keep doing that for, you know, an interim period um, and have those alternatives. When you look at things like the COVID passport, quite a lot of work went into making sure that was inclusive. So for most people, they accessed it on their smartphone, but for others, they could ask their GP to um, to give them a letter, or they could use a web. Um, they could use a web format to download the QR code and print it out themselves. And so there were various options depending on how comfortable people were with technology and whether or not they they wanted to use a smartphone. And so you could think about similar things when it comes to providing digital identity credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any other potential applications of a digital identity that you weren't able to fully explore in the paper? Well, there's lots. I mean, the reason I describe it as infrastructure is that I really think it's part of the essential um, services that the government needs to ensure are in place so that society and the economy can can run efficiently and effectively. So, you know, apart from um, people needing to identify themselves when they need something from government, we need to prove things about ourselves all the time to buy um, and use goods and services from the private sector or um, you know, just to engage in society, you're always proving things about yourself and giving people a really secure way to do that could have all sorts of benefits throughout the economy in terms of reducing fraud, in terms of um, improving people's privacy. You know, e- even think about something as simple as at the moment for quite a few people, they might take their driving license out with them on a night out to prove they're old enough to buy a drink at the bar. You know, it seems insecure and weird that you're needing to carry around this quite valuable piece of ID with you when you could have something on your phone that proves that you're over 18 without sharing anything like your address or your name or your exact date of birth. That's a very sort of small, limited example, but there are, I would say the average person needs to prove things about themselves hundreds of times a week um, and making that easier and more secure and more private would be um, hugely valuable. Mm, Absolutely. Um, On an international level, uh, how easy would it be for a a UK citizen traveling abroad to be able to use their digital ID to verify their identity in another country? Or is the digital ID, as is currently uh, proposed in the paper, solely for use within the UK? 
Well, we were looking at this in this paper just at the UK because um, that was the audience for this. But there is a question of international interoperability. The EU was um, putting in place its digital ID wallet, EIDAS system, and setting the standards for that. And I think the UK government should think very carefully about how it um, manages the interoperability of a UK digital identity with the EU system and with global systems. Um, and I think there's huge gains to be made there as well. So when you think about um, crossing the border into another country, often you're queuing so someone can eyeball your passport. Um, you know, with an interoperable digital ID, it could be as simple as tapping your Oyster card when you go onto the tube. Yeah. Um, we're coming to the end of the podcast. It's, it's been great to speak to you, Kirsty. But I do have one final question. What do you hope people reading the paper will take away from it? The main thing I hope they'll take away from it is that putting in place a digital identity would be mainly a way of empowering citizens, giving them more access and control to their own data and serving them better. Absolutely. Well, thank you once again uh, for taking the time uh, to speak to me on the podcast. If people want to find out more about you, want to read the paper, want to find out more about the, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, where should they go to, to find out all these things? They can go to our website, institute.global, and search for the Great Enabler paper, and they can read all about it. Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. Mm-hmm.